handouts if you have those. We do have some copies there at the back if anyone missed that and would like one. We are in chapter 28 and in paragraph 5 we're finishing up this matter of the importance of baptism uh, that we began looking at last week and let's read that paragraph together um, paragraph 5 although it be a great sin to contemn or neglect this ordinance yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated and last week we looked at that second to last phrase as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it. In other words, we, we don't see scripture teaching us that baptism as a sacrament is an absolute requirement to enter into and receive the grace of God. Even though it is commanded, even though we are to submit to it and profess our faith in Christ through it as professing believers... Um, nonetheless, it's not so necessary or the grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed or connected to it that no one can be regenerated or saved without it. And we looked at Acts 10 last week and the case of Cornelius and his household. Of course, that passage teaches us many things about the inclusion of the Gentiles and the people of God and so forth. But of note what we see at the end of that passage is uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon those who had believed hearing the Word of God and then Peter's conclusion at the end uh, he asked this question can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have and so what what we see in that context in that situation is these people had already received the spiritual reality of which baptism is a picture. They had received that baptism of the Holy Spirit, if you will. The Holy Spirit had been poured out on them. And although the order is normally that um, one is professing their faith through the sacrament of baptism uh, publicly uh, as, a, as a new professing believer coming into the covenant, uh, the Lord showed clearly his favor and their position within his church uh, as it were to answer that question that some were having should these be welcomed into the covenant people of God um, they've always been these God fearers as it were who were outside the covenant community and yet um, God not only sends Peter gives him the vision revokes those uh, distinctions between clean and unclean food, um, sends him with the gospel to this house of Gentiles, but then gives them faith to believe the message, and upon their believing, pours out the Holy Spirit upon them. And so God leading in this, and his apostles and, and the people of the church recognizing this and acknowledging, well, well, that's what baptism 
this is the very case for which baptism is uh, appropriate. They have the reality of baptism. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So we have no indication in the text here. There were, you know, no one dropped dead there in that context. But we do have to recognize that prior to their baptism, they were already saved. They had already received the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And if anyone had been called uh, from this life in that moment unbaptized, is there any question that they would have gone to heaven? They've believed the gospel. They've had the Holy Spirit poured out on them. They've experienced the reality of everything that the sacrament of baptism pictures. And so even though Scripture does give us, as we're going to see, um, passages emphasizing the importance of baptism and also particularly our looking to the work of God in our life by faith as we submit to baptism. Um, it, it would be wrong as, for example, the Church of Christ teaches that it's an absolute requirement. If you haven't been baptized with water, then you can't say you've experienced salvation. And so that's not what the scripture teaches, and that's what our confession is saying, that it is not so inseparably annexed or connected to baptism so that a person who hasn't experienced baptism might not experience that grace of God. Now we look at the last phrase this morning, or that all that are baptized are undoubtedly regenerated. So the, the reverse is also true. Not only can God convey his grace separate from the sacrament of baptism, but there are those who receive the sacrament but do not receive that grace. And we see examples of that in Scripture. We've, we've looked at some of those in the Old Testament. With respect to circumcision, you have Esau and Ishmael, and we could go down a long list, but we're, we're directed just for this purpose to Acts chapter 8 for a New Testament example of how someone who professed their faith in Christ and were granted, they, they wanted to submit to baptism. I, I'm a believer in Jesus. Um, yet, within the same chapter, they're going to turn around and show that that was a false profession. They were deceiving everyone. And what, what does that mean about them being baptized? Well, uh, it doesn't just magically convey the grace of God in some automatic way. Here's a man who, as we're going to read, submitted to the sacrament but had not received the grace. And so in Acts chapter 8, verse 9, uh, well, let's back up in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. In verse 6, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man... Is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed 
Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, sometimes the scripture will record something from the perspective of those who were there. Uh, rather than giving us the insight of what God saw in the case in certain cases. And, and so in verse 13, when we read, even Simon himself believed, he had uh, heard the gospel. He was saying, well, I do. I do believe that. Um, I, I'm willing to renounce my life of sin and confess Jesus Christ, and I want to submit to baptism. Uh, this is what Simon had done. After being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now there again, what do we see in this case? Um, there in the days of, of the apostles, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was visible. It was visible in these spiritual gifts of the New Testament uh, apostolic age before revelation had been completed. So, for example, on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit was poured out, there, were, there was actually visible tongues of fire on their heads, but they also could, could witness that, right? They were speaking everyone in different tongue that he didn't know to these from all over the world hearing the gospel in their own language. Uh, things such as this were, were clear evidence. You couldn't um, manufacture that. It was clear evidence that God's poured his Holy Spirit out. And so here the case is Philip and others have gone and preached and the, the gospel's been believed He's even doing some signs and wonders that have been amazing. And um, they have been baptized, but they have not yet received the Holy Spirit in this sense of the outpouring of the Spirit as on the day of Pentecost. And so the apostles come, and in verse 17, then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying... Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And so, you know, sometimes there's question about, well, what happened to Simon? Well, the text doesn't say. Verse 24 says, Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And certain church historians have recorded that, no, Simon was an apostate, and he never did truly come back to the faith. Uh, but that's really beside the point for our purpose of looking at this example where 
very clearly. Here's a man who had professed his faith in Christ. And it is interesting, I, I think, instructive for us to recognize um, who's a good candidate for believing in the gospel and then professing their faith and being baptized. I mean, Simon didn't stand out as someone who shouldn't be allowed uh, on the front side of this. Uh, the text gives us no indication that this was a mistake on Philip's part, for example. Uh, even though he's, he's up to that point been practicing magic, saying he was somebody great, uh, very f- boastful, and had been leading people astray for years. Um, when the gospel comes, that's the very sort of person that the Lord Jesus can and does bring to himself and grant newness of life. So we, we do see a willingness to receive profession of faith, to administer baptism. Um, that's something that I think is instructive to us, that we shouldn't... Um, <coughs> refuse to acknowledge the the power of the grace of God in a person's life. You know, we we have people from different backgrounds uh, all around us in terms of the life they've lived. And even though God does call us to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves, he calls us to look to the fruit that we might discern the tree. Nonetheless, um, this amazing power of the gospel in the hand of the Lord Jesus it operates in cases just like this. But what Simon then goes to show is that by the time the apostles come and they're laying their hands on and conveying the Holy Spirit, which was only by the uh, instruction and and direction of the Lord Jesus that they could do that, uh, he was the one who could pour out the Holy Spirit. They were merely his servants acting on his instruction. But when the apostles are there, Simon... Um, wants to have this power, wants to have this ability, this gift of conveying or, or giving the Holy Spirit to those he would lay his hands on and seeks to buy that from the apostles. And what, what does uh, Peter say? Well, this is, this is a clear evidence that you, you don't understand the gospel. You think you can buy this with, with money? You think that we would sell this to you? Uh, this is the gift of God. It's not something that can be traded. And may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then goes on to just to say you, your, your spiritual condition is, is that of someone who's lost in verse 23. I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Um, in other words, you've received the sacrament. You had professed a faith in Christ, but you still haven't received the spiritual reality that that represents. So whether he repented as Peter called him to or not, as church historians tend to to think, um, at that point he had received the sacrament of baptism, having professed his faith, and at that point was not regenerate. And so that's, that's the point the confession is making here, that again, the... It's not a sacerdotal view of the sacraments. It's not an automatic conveyance of grace. It's not something such as as Rome teaches that if you can just take the sacrament, you are taking the grace into your life. No, the grace is God's to give and is conveyed in response to faith in the Lord Jesus. And so verse... uh, Paragraph 5 then deals with the importance of baptism. So it is 
a sin to neglect, but it is not so necessary that you can't be saved without it, and it's not so efficacious that all that receive the sacrament are regenerated. All right, let's go then to the sixth paragraph and look at this matter of the efficacy of baptism. That is, what what makes it efficacious? When is it efficacious? And how is it efficacious? So, paragraph six, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will, in his appointed time. So we have to be careful with our understanding here. So what is, what is this saying? Well, it, it's saying, first of all, that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered. So it is something God has appointed. It's something that he has provided. It's something that he does work through in his grace. But let's, let's clarify what that looks like. First of all, it's not tied to the moment of time where it's administered. That even in the case of a true believer in Jesus, oftentimes the gift of faith and the cleansing of the blood of Jesus and even the gift of the Holy Spirit to give that faith and awaken us in regeneration precedes baptism in the case of a professor. Um, it can even in the case of an infant, as we see the example of John the Baptist being given a love for Jesus even in his mother's womb. And Timothy, who from a very young age had grown up loving God and believing his word. So the efficacy is not tied to the moment of time wherein it is administered. Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, and we'll, we'll talk about that phrase, that's very key, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not off, only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And so let's first look at John chapter 3, verses 5 and 8. And this is in explanation of or support of this statement that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time when it is administered. In other words, it does picture the grace of God. It pictures the cleansing work of the Lord Jesus. It pictures the, the pouring out of God's Spirit upon a person in a, a newness of life. But we shouldn't understand it as, as though, again, that moment when a person is baptized, well, that's when all of this necessarily happens. In John chapter 3, verse 5, now this is when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about being born again, about entry into the kingdom of God. And if we go back to 
Verse 1, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And so, again, what, what's the, the question or the issue that Nicodemus is wrestling with that Jesus is explaining to him? Well, it's not enough just to be born an Israelite. It's not enough to be born of the family of Abraham. It's not enough to be sac- uh, circumcised with that Old Testament sacrament. No, you have to be born again. There has to be that spiritual new birth. And that's what Jesus is describing by this being born again. So Nicodemus is is confused. How how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And here we see our verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And so even though in this in this context, John the Baptist is baptizing with that baptism of repentance he is uh, applying the water to those who are coming confessing their sin Um, what what must what truly affects this new birth well you could deceive john i mean the pharisees couldn't obviously but i'm sure many people did Uh, go to john say oh john i've uh i want to repent i want to confess my sin and and baptize me with this baptism of repentance I'm sure that many, I mean, if you look at the multitudes that John baptized and followed them through the Gospels, they then leave John to follow Jesus, and most of them end up turning away from Jesus over the course of his ministry. So it's not enough to be born of water or baptized with that sacrament. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit. It requires being born anew of the Spirit. And what does it say about the Holy Spirit in verse 8? The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, no one can control the Holy Spirit. You can't put it on your schedule and say, well, I'm going to be baptized with water tomorrow, and that's when the Holy Spirit's going to do this work in my life. No, you look by faith if you're rightly using this. If you're looking there in John's day, you're submitting to that baptism of repentance. You are seeking the, the grace and forgiveness of God. You're confessing your sin. You're looking to him. But what, what do we see here? The wind blows where it wishes. Uh, you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit so he's he's going to work when and how he wishes we can't control god we can't control his grace we can't control his spirit 
And so that, that goes back to that first phrase of paragraph 6, that the efficacy of baptism is not tied to the moment of time where it's administered. If, if it was, then any man who was able to apply the water of baptism to a person would be what? Would be conveying the grace of God. But that's not the case. It's not so tied. The Spirit is, is required, and He works as He wishes. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. So that's, that's the first point, that, that the Holy Spirit works when He will. We, we can't control His timing, even by administering the sacrament as He's called us to. Yet, back to the confession, yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance... The grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. And so who is going to experience the reality of cleansing spiritually? Who's going to experience that? Well, everyone that God gives that grace to, that's who's going to experience it. And that grace belongs to them. Why? What have they done for the grace to belong to them? It, it, it's grace, right? It's God's gift. It's according to his own good pleasure that he, he works by this grace. And, and so let's look at Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and this, this comes then to this right use of the ordinance. What, uh, what, how do we understand um, verse 27 of Galatians 3? And let's back up to verse 22. Um, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So as we read those verses, it's not difficult to see a very consistent message in terms of how are we saved. Look at those, uh, those references at the end of verse 22. Well, the middle of it, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ. It's given to those who believe. Uh, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. The end of verse 24, um, Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. So, again... It's not hard to see, is it? How are we saved? How do we come to life um, and, and receive the, 
payment of Christ for our sins and the blessings that Christ has earned as our own, it's by faith. We're justified by faith. We're made sons of God through faith. Uh, the promise by faith in Jesus Christ is given to those who believe. So not difficult to see. So there's no change, though, as we've just read all of that when we come to verse 27. And I think this helps us have insight into what is the right use of the ordinance. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. What, what is it um, about the sacrament of baptism? How is it that God accomplishes that true cleansing in our lives? Well, as we see the sacrament applied, we look to the Lord Jesus. We confess a need for cleansing, and we look to Christ saying, Lord, you're the only one that can cleanse me. Your blood is the only thing that can wash my sins away. And I'm looking to you as God's provision, as God's Savior, the only name given under heaven by which we can be saved. I'm looking to you to cleanse me. Apart from that, it's just a meaningless, empty symbol. Nothing else can cleanse the sinner's heart except the blood of Jesus. And so it's just a sick joke. To, to look at baptism any other way. The only way that the, it's rightly used is looking to Christ in that moment or even reflecting upon that as you see someone else baptized. Whatever the case, you are, you are recognizing the need for cleansing and you're looking to Christ to accomplish that cleansing in your life. It has to be by faith in Christ. And so... It's not anything separate from that. When we, when we talk about the grace promised, back to the confession, uh, is not only offered but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost. Now, wait a minute. We've just said the sacrament can't convey the grace of God as though the person who administers the water is controlling the grace and dispensing it out, doling it out to whom he wishes. No, but... When the ordinance is used rightly, what, what does that mean? That means we're looking to Christ. We're looking to Jesus for that cleansing. We're, we're acknowledging, Lord, this water, you can pour this water on me all day long. It's not going to wash the stain of sin from my heart. I need you to come and do this work within me that is being pictured upon me. When we rightly use the ordinance, when we look to Christ for that cleansing, then it's so far beyond just an empty symbol. God, we're doing it at God's command. He is the one who can convey the grace. And he not only offers cleansing in, in the preaching of the gospel, in the act of baptism, he, he's not only declaring there is a possibility of cleansing for everyone who is stained with sin. But he is really exhibiting and conferring that cleansing upon those who look by faith to Jesus Christ for it. Again, bearing in mind, it's not necessarily at the time when the water was poured upon you. A person might, much later in life, finally come and say, I I'm considering my baptism and I'm agreeing that I need that cleansing and I'm looking to Jesus 
to accomplish it. Or in the case of a true professor of faith in Christ, um, their, their cleansing's already been confirmed. They've already experienced that spiritual reality when the sacrament is applied to them. And so that's, that's where the timing of it, it's, it's not to say it will never coincide, but um, it is often the case that it is in another time as the Spirit works when He wills, as the wind blows where it wishes, uh, that he, he opens our eyes and opens our heart to the truth of what we see pictured in that sacrament. And we finally look to Jesus and receive the grace that God was promising and picturing that there is cleansing from sin, cleansing from the guilt of sin, cleansing from the power of sin, and a newness of life possible through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such whether of age or infants as that grace belongs unto. And so Titus chapter 3 Verse 5, it's a, it's a verse we've looked at <clears throat> a couple times in this chapter, actually. If we look at verse, um, well, verse 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And there's the, the spiritual reality that baptism pictures. The washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is um, something that God does. That is how salvation is affected. He, he cleanses us. He washes us in the cleansing of the blood of Jesus that our sins might be paid for and washed away. Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. Here's another passage that uses this language. This is in reference to Christ and his love and care for the church. In verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. So again, here's the spiritual reality that Jesus is cleansing those defiled by sin. He's cleansing his church. He loved his church. He gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her with the washing of water with the word. And so he's, he's at work cleansing progressively more and more this corporate body of believers. Um, this is... This is done incrementally as he brings a person out of darkness and they are brought to faith in Christ, he cleanses them. 
There's also this progressive cleansing of sanctification as we continue, even as believers, to have the work of the Holy Spirit, the work of Jesus Christ, continuing this washing of water with the Word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, that is the end result of what Jesus has promised to do. And even as believers, I think it's very easy for us to kind of settle in to where we are and to lose sight of that glorious vision. That, yes, we've received the full forgiveness of our sins. Praise God for that. We have been justified in His sight by Christ taking our place upon the cross. But Jesus has in view a, a total cleansing, a perfection, a, a beautification of each of us that would make us holy and without blemish, without any spot or wrinkle, that we would have splendor of holiness in His sight as, as His bride, the church. And that is something that is also pictured in our baptism. It's not just that initial washing away of the guilt of sin, but it is the, the washing away of sanctification, of progressive cleansing until the Lord Jesus has completed this work of cleansing and presents the church to himself in all of her beauty. <laughs> Let's look at Acts 2.38 then. Acts 2.38 and verse 41. And here, here we have a compression in that timeline of what can, at other cases, be spread over many years. But here in Acts 2, and we've, we've looked at the context here, but there's something in particular about the timing and the connection between the grace and the baptism that uh, the, the assembly uh, directs us to consider. Uh, of course, Peter's preached his sermon. These are the people who had condemned Jesus Christ before Pilate's court. And in verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what, what do we see in that, in that phrase? Well, this, this connection that it is repenting and being baptized this isn't any different than other formulas of what must i do to be saved that we see elsewhere in scripture you know paul would would tell uh the philippian jailer as we looked last week um, believe in the lord jesus christ and you will be saved well this isn't some different instruction when peter says repent and be baptized he is calling them in that baptism to look and, and acknowledge and receive God's promise that there is cleansing available for their sin. It can be washed away, and it is found. That cleansing is found in the Lord Jesus. It's found by looking to Him and confessing your sin, repenting, and, and receiving His cleansing work in your life. And that was done not only with words, but with the act of submitting to baptism, acknowledging and confessing, I need this cleansing, 
and I am looking to God to grant it to me. And so repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. Now look at verse 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Those who received his word, what is that language describing? Well, they heard the message of the gospel, and they responded how? They responded with faith. They, they were cut to the heart. They, they confessed the truth of it. And with thanksgiving, they looked to God for salvation from the terrible sin that they committed, surely not just this one, but they were being convicted of participating in the murder of God's own son, and God was giving them an offer of mercy and forgiveness. And so they received his word. They were baptized. And what, what's in view there? Well, not only did they receive the water of baptism upon themselves, but as they were looking to the Lord Jesus, as they received this word, as they were confessing truly faith in Christ, they did receive the reality of that cleansing that very day. The same day, they, they experienced the joy of God's forgiveness and the power of his forgiveness all in the same very short time frame. They've heard the gospel, they've repented, they've submitted to baptism, and they've been cleansed. And so in verse 41, there were added that day about 3,000 souls as God counted his people and knows these are mine. These are my sheep. These are the ones I've given faith in my son. 3,000, about 3,000 people truly repented and experienced all of that in a very short time frame. The, the spiritual reality, the sacrament, uh, the gospel being preached, all of this happened very quickly there on the day of Pentecost. And so, again, did they experience the the grace of God yes they did did they receive and experience the cleansing that God alone could accomplish yes they did it wasn't by the water being administered but it was by looking in faith to Jesus Christ and that was the same reason they submitted to that baptism what does Jesus want me to do if I'm looking to him as my say well he calls you to repent he calls you to publicly confess your need of cleansing and to take his mark upon yourself to be baptized in his name. And he, he promises to cleanse you and forgive you. That's what they experienced that day. And that's what we pray for as we're baptizing someone, whether, whether it is a, a person coming of age, as the confession says, and, and expressing, I love Jesus. I'm confessing him as my Savior. I'm confessing the guilt of my sin. I want to join with his people. I want to receive the sacrament of baptism and, and declare myself his disciple. And I want to receive the cleansing that God has promised to me in his word. Uh, we pray that that would be 
accomplished in their life by the grace of God. We, we pray that it would, if it hasn't already happened, that they would, in fact, have their eyes open to the glory of Jesus Christ as their Savior, and that they would, in fact, receive the reality of that, even as they are, or before or after, whatever the case, that they would nonetheless receive the cleansing that God would convey. And it's no different in that sense as we are called by Scripture to baptize infants. What is our prayer in their case? That whether they're a John the Baptist or whether they're a Timothy or whether at some point in their life, but at whatever point, that as we continue to share the gospel with them, and point them to Jesus, that God would open their heart to look to him, and that it wouldn't just be a symbol and a sacrament applied to them, but it would actually be a picture of an inward reality that they would have experienced by the grace of God. And again, when when does a person, what is the moment a person enters into God's forgiveness? What is the moment when The grace of God is shown to them, and they are granted faith in Jesus Christ. There are, you know, those more dramatic testimonies, and some people can literally tell you, yeah, here's where I was, and and this person was preaching, or this person was sharing the gospel, or I heard my dad praying for me in the room beside me, or whatever that case might be. But there are other cases where it's John 3, verse 8, the Spirit blows where it wishes, it's the wind, and uh, you know, in a gradual way of gentleness, the Lord has been working in my heart. And I don't know, as, as one old pastor said, you, you don't have to see the sunrise to know the sun is up. You know, I, I, I just know that I love Jesus. I know that he's my Savior. And exactly when that first began, at times you'll talk to a, a child of the covenant. They'll just say, well, I just, as far back as I can remember, I've loved Jesus, and I can't point to the time where that began. And that's a sweet testimony to hear. Whatever the case is, however God is pleased to work, we are praying for that baptism to be effective in their life. Again, not as some outward sprinkling of water would somehow cleanse their heart, but that they would look upon that and have faith in Jesus confessing their need of that very cleansing in their life. Well, we've wrapped up, and we will um, we'll save one, one, one sentence and one verse for next week because we ran out of time. Um, but we'll, we'll conclude our chapter on baptism and begin with the Lord's Supper uh, by God's grace next week. Let's close with prayer. Our Father, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for the sweetness of your grace. We thank you that there is a forgiveness for sin made possible by your grace, by your provision, by the gift of your Son, by his life and death upon the cross. We thank you that by the outpoured Holy Spirit who powerfully works, that a dead heart can be made alive. And those stained with the filth of sin may be truly cleansed and washed clean. We thank you that the work of Jesus is not concluded with respect to this world, or even ourselves, Lord. There is much cleansing that we still need to be praying for and longing for in our lives through the sanctifying work of your Holy Spirit. 
Please encourage us with this reminder that this is, in fact, Christ's purpose, His plan, and that we would take encouragement and comfort from that, and that you would bless us uh, to pursue it by faith in Jesus Christ. We ask that you would be with us now as we have gathered in this place to worship you. May our hearts be uh, true and lifted up to you in faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.